This is Chris Masterjohn, and you're listening to episode 15 of The Daily Lipid. This is The Daily Lipid Podcast with Chris Masterjohn. Health and nutrition news you can use on the daily. Are, 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 are you ready? Episode 15 is another special episode where I am bringing to you the recording of a Facebook Live event, my second ever Facebook Live event. And this time the topic was Ask Chris Master John, PhD, anything about heart disease. And in this episode, you'll find my answers to the following questions. Should we be trying to micromanage specific fatty acids to prevent heart disease? Should having the ApoE Epsilon 4 or E4 allele affect what we eat? My so far persistent belief that the total to HDL cholesterol ratio is the most valuable blood lipid-based predictor of heart disease risk. Why the vitamin E content of HDL particles could be a major determinant of their protective effects against heart disease. Can heart disease be reversed? Is blood pressure a direct contributor to heart disease or does its correlation with heart disease just reflect some other underlying factor? Are Americans over-consuming calcium? And you may be surprised by my answer because it differs from uh, many others in the ancestral health community, but the short way of saying it is that my answer is no. Using essential oils as an alternative to medicines, how should we balance diet and lifestyle versus the use of medication? In this episode, you will find all this and more. And please remember that you can show up to Facebook Live at the following times. Saturday, June 25th, 2 p.m. Eastern Time to ask me anything about methylation nutrients. Wednesday, June 29th, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time to ask me anything about vitamins A, D, and K. And Saturday, July 9th, 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time to ask me anything about, well, really anything. Anything about anything related to health, fitness, and nutrition. Without further ado, here is the full recording of the heart disease-themed Facebook Live episode. Okay, now, because we have a specific theme tonight, before I start answering questions, I want to just give a general background about our topic, heart disease, to make sure everyone's on the same page. And also because, you know, this is going to be showing up in a lot of people's news feeds who are not necessarily followers of my work, or maybe not necessarily have done any significant research into heart disease. Uh, so I want to make sure that when I do start answering questions, it actually makes sense to the, to the people who are watching. So uh, first to be clear, I said heart disease in this title, and when most people think of heart disease, they think of the most common type of heart disease, which is actually the one that I hope to primarily address because it happens to be the one that I have the most expertise on. But heart disease is really a diverse collection of potential things that can go wrong with the heart or blood vessels that affect the heart. And most commonly, what we think of is coronary heart disease, which is driven by the accumulation of plaque inside the blood vessel walls, specific in the, specifically in the coronary arteries that feed the heart. And this is the most common cause of uh, heart attacks or myocardial infarctions. And I will take questions. You can certainly submit questions about other types of heart disease, but I will be best able to answer questions about coronary heart disease in that sense. Uh, likewise, you can submit questions about 
drugs or anything else like that, but I will be best able to talk about diet and lifestyle simply because my PhD is in nutritional sciences. Now, before we get started, what I want to do is clarify a couple things because there are, um, if you have not been really engaged in these types of discussions before, you probably have this oversimplified understanding of heart disease that most people have. And I want to make clear three things. One is that there is this simplified understanding of heart disease that most people have. The second is that there's a consensus agreement between scientists about what heart disease really is that's very different from that oversimplification. And just to be clear, no one has ever said anything ever in the face of the earth that isn't a simplification of reality. But in practice, scientists have a common understanding of what causes heart disease. But when doctors talk to their patients, they simplify it on on a level that they hope to understand just to be able to convince them of why they should take the treatment that they're offering them. And in order to really understand my answers to the questions that are going to be in this episode, we really need to bring things to the next level and get a, a basic understanding, a, a, a basic scientific understanding of what heart disease is. And then there are some things about the implications of that that are controversial. And I want to make clear what is and isn't controversial. So first of all, the simplistic understanding of heart disease that most people have is that it's driven by high cholesterol. The more cholesterol that is in your blood, the more will get stuck to the blood vessel wall. And the more sticks to the blood vessel wall, the narrower the room for blood to flow becomes. And if you don't have enough blood flow, then eventually your heart is deprived of that blood and you could have a heart attack. What as scientists, what we know actually is that, or what is broadly a consensus among scientists, is that it's not so much that the cholesterol levels are high in the blood, but it's actually a process of degeneration of the lipoproteins that carry that cholesterol and the active construction of a plaque by the immune system. So we know you know, we first understood that cholesterol played a role in heart disease back when in the early 20th century, they fed cholesterol to rabbits. The rabbits developed high cholesterol and they developed heart disease. From those same experiments from the very beginning, we knew that it wasn't the cholesterol itself that caused heart disease because you could inject those rabbits with free cholesterol and they wouldn't develop atherosclerosis. If you fed them cholesterol, they would. And the difference between injecting them with cholesterol and feeding them cholesterol is when you eat cholesterol, it gets packaged in lipoproteins. And lipoproteins are a way of transporting this fat-soluble substance of cholesterol in the blood, which is made of water. And there are a variety of components of the lipoproteins, including the fats and cholesterol and fat-soluble nutrients that are carried on the inside, but also the layer on the outside that interacts with the blood is made up of molecules called phospholipids that contain fatty acids. And most people who know something about fat know that it can be classified between saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, and polyunsaturated fat. And it's actually the oxidative destruction of polyunsaturated fats in the membrane of the LDL particle that initiates the construction of an atherosclerotic plaque. And it doesn't just happen 
on its own, but it's actually an active process by the immune system to quarantine these degenerating particles. And although this particular statement might be controversial, I see that as a positive adaptation because the immune system is trying to protect the blood vessels. Because if you just dump these oxidized particles onto the blood vessels, all the cells will die. So I see this as a protective mechanism. And I think a lot of scientists would agree with me on that. Maybe they wouldn't all agree with that viewpoint. But I think they would, in general, agree that it's a consensus, that it's the oxidative destruction of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the membrane that drives atherosclerosis. But it isn't the formation of an atherosclerotic plaque that drives heart attacks. In fact, it is the rupture of those plaques. So when you develop a plaque, your cells provide a layer of collagen around that plaque to help prevent the oxidized and inflammatory contents in the middle of the plaque from spilling out into the blood. Most heart attacks are caused when that plaque ruptures. What makes it rupture? Well, part of that is inflammation. Part of that is oxidative stress. So when we're looking at the relationship between, uh, between cholesterol and heart disease, we really need to think about what will prevent those lipoproteins from oxidizing in the first place. That's partly about the balance of different types of fats and antioxidants that you consume in the diet. It's also about your rate of metabolism because if your body picks up those lipoproteins out of the blood and takes them into the cells to do useful things with them, for example, with cholesterol, when we take it into the cell, we make bile acids that help us digest foods better. We make hormones, including all the sex hormones, but also hormones that regulate our blood pressure and mineral balance and so on. So when we do these useful things with cholesterol, we're taking the particles out of the blood and that is preventing them from spending so much time in the blood that it, uh, that, and thereby preventing them from undergoing this degeneration. Now, if your doctor is your medical doctor is explaining to you in very simple terms how to prevent heart disease, they're going to say you lower the concentration of cholesterol in the blood. And that's because the nuances and sophistication that I'm bringing up here don't make a difference to the at the typical medical treatment because the typical medical treatment is to give you a drug that lowers your cholesterol. So in that case, the doctor has no need to help you understand why it's more nuanced and sophisticated than that. But when we're talking about diet and lifestyle, we're talking about how can we increase the rate at which we take up those particles out of the blood? How can we make the uh, where those particles are a less oxidizing environment? How can we better protect the particles by pumping up their antioxidant supply? How can we prevent the processes that lead to the breakdown of atherosclerotic plaques for example, how can we support collagen synthesis? How can we decrease inflammation to prevent the breakdown of the collagen-rich plaque that protects our blood supply in our heart? How can we uh, how can we um, lower the level of of inflammation and it's and so on and so on and so forth? So. Um, so we will be able to tap into many different aspects of that of that process. And uh, for, for now, I hope that provides a foundation. I'd like to take the rest of the time to focus on answering your questions. Um, so let me see, first of all, if there's a good way to see who's liking what. Um, hmm, Facebook does not show me all the questions on the... Hmm, let me see if I can do one thing. 
Maybe if I start playing this and make sure the sound is off. Mm. All right. It looks like I don't have good access to who's liking what. So I'm going to try to uh, go through these questions and uh, do my best to answer as many as possible. All right. Ty Beal says, I know you did a podcast on the conflicting evidence of the link between saturated fat and heart disease, but I have read many of the articles on both sides and I'm still conflicted about what to believe. While the ideal intake of saturated fats may vary depending on individual risk factors for heart disease and genetics, are there universal recommendations you think should be given to the U.S. population other than to model what our ancestors ate? Do specific types of saturated fats, for example, lauric acid, myristic acid, palmitic acid, or stearic acid, have different effects on cardiovascular disease risk? Well, one of the major problems that we have in trying to answer this question is that all the studies that we have looking at specific fatty acids, looking at that level of detail in terms of randomized controlled trials that give us very good understanding of cause and effect, all those studies are looking at blood lipids and inferring the cardiovascular risk from those blood lipids rather than looking at disease endpoints. For example, do people actually get heart disease? Now, I mentioned before that in what drives the degeneration of the, of the LDL particle is the polyunsaturated fatty acids in its membrane. And there is, in this particular case, there are good reasons to argue both sides about whether we want more saturated fats or more polyunsaturated fats. So, for example, polyunsaturated fats actually are well known since the 1950s that if you replace saturated fats in the diet with polyunsaturated fats, you will lower the level of cholesterol in the blood. Now, how does that work? If polyunsaturated fats going into the liver are really high, they tend to bind to cholesterol in the liver which uh, and form what are called cholesterol esters. And when they do that, what happens is that cholesterol gets stuck in the liver as cholesterol esters, but also the liver senses its own need for cholesterol based on the concentration of free cholesterol in the liver. So if PUFAs or polyunsaturated fats, which I'll call PUFAs from now on, are binding to the cholesterol and, and um, sequestering it as esters, then the free cholesterol in the liver declines and the liver says, ah, I am in need of more cholesterol. What does the liver do? The liver upregulates or increases the amount of LDL receptors in its membrane. And LDL receptors are the main governor of plasma cholesterol levels. What they do is they take LDL particles out of the blood, in this case, into the liver, and allow the digestion and utilization of everything inside the particle. Well, that sounds really good, right? Because... We know that genetic studies that look at how do different genes affect LDL receptor activity overwhelmingly show that more LDL receptor activity reduces heart disease risk. All of the most successful drugs that treat heart disease are drugs that increase the expression of hepatic, meaning the liver's LDL receptors. For example, the most prominent example of which is statins. We know them, we think of them as things that inhibit cholesterol synthesis, 
They do, but they do it primarily in the liver, and that makes the liver, liver sense that it needs more cholesterol, so it takes it in from the blood. So PUFAs in that sense are doing the same thing that statins are doing in terms of LDL receptor expression. The difference is that animal feeding studies show clearly that giving animals more PUFAs does not cause them to have less cholesterol in their body. There's just less in the blood and the cholesterol content of all the tissues, especially the liver and adipose tissue, skyrockets. So you're just stuffing the cholesterol into your into your tissue, your non-blood tissues and, and stuffing it there. That I'm to be honest, that doesn't seem like a good thing to me. I mean, you know, hepatic cholesterol content, if it goes too high, we would consider that one of the aspects of fatty liver disease. Um, but I don't know that it has a specific endpoint. Um, but, you know, the total opposite side of that coin is that although you take the lipoprotein particles into the blood at a faster rate, you enrich those lipoprotein particles in those fatty acids, and they happen to be the ones that are most vulnerable to oxidation. And I know, Ty, I'm sure you've, I'm sure, Ty, you know all this stuff because you've been following my work, but I want to make it clear for everyone out there. Um, so one of the really big problems that we have is that you could say, well, PUFAs should increase the risk of heart disease. PUFAs should decrease the risk of heart disease, depending on which which of those two mechanisms that you want to emphasize. And in terms of clinical trials, the only convinced, the only trials that were convincing that replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat were trials like the Oslo Diet Heart Study, where they also increased fruits and vegetables as part of the intervention and increased, in general, got rid of refined foods, got rid of hydrogenated oils, replaced them with whole foods, gave out uh, free sardines rich in bones, uh, canned and cod liver oil, supplying all these incredible nutrients that we should be trying to get. Um, and all the trials that just replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat um, did not provide convincing evidence of that at all. And I've, you know, reviewed those more extensively elsewhere. And I'll link to my reviews of those studies in the show notes when when this is eventually published as a podcast and published on my blog, uh, The Daily Lipid. Uh, and I didn't mention that before, but uh, I should note that um, after the recording is made of this, I will post the recording plus show notes on my blog called The Daily Lipid. You can go to blog.cholesterol-and-health or cholesterolandhealth.com, or you can just Google the daily lipid. All right, so if you're if you're looking at those trials that look at disease endpoints, then no, absolutely not. We can't possibly get down as granular as what about lauric acid, what about myristic acid, what about palmitic acid, because all we have is this handful of trials with very different lengths and study designs and populations where they just in a very general way made the, made the treatment to replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats. So how on earth can we possibly get more granular than that? If we want to get granular, what we have to do is look at specific studies of how do you modulate blood lipids. And there is definitely uh, plenty of research on this. And I again, I will link in the show notes eventually, I will link to a blog post that I wrote called uh, The Total to HDL Cholesterol Ratio, What Does It Mean? And in there, I discuss effects of specific fatty acids and I link to some of the research studies that, that pooled together all those different trials. And uh, what you find there is that depending on how you want to splice the data, you could pick, 
your you could pick which fatty acids you think are good and which you think are not. So, for example, uh, lauric acid and myristic acid tend to be the fatty acids that raise cholesterol levels the most. And in that case, you say, well, I don't think high cholesterol is a good thing. But if you are looking at the ratio of cholesterol in different compartments in the blood, lauric acid, which is found most abundantly in coconut oil, is actually extremely effective at providing a better total to HDL cholesterol ratio. In other words, and I've, this is an oversimplification, but people talk about LDL cholesterol being the good cholesterol and HDL cholesterol being the bad, uh, excuse me, <laughs> I said that backwards, LDL cholesterol being the bad cholesterol and HDL cholesterol being the good cholesterol. I don't really agree with that terminology, but it is true that by far and away, looking at blood lipids, by far and away, incontrovertible, the best evidence is behind wanting a lower total to HDL cholesterol ratio. And so coconut oil, and if you're looking more granularly, lauric acid, is super effective at raising HDL cholesterol. And so if you're looking at the ratio, it actually is one of the best ways to decrease the total HDL cholesterol ratios to, is to consume more lauric acid, which in terms of practical food implications means to eat more coconut oil. Now the question is, do those changes in blood lipids translate into a change in disease risk? And I don't think that you can necessarily support that because if we look at polyunsaturated fatty acids, then you know everyone was arguing that because they lower cholesterol levels, they should lower disease risk, and we don't have good uh, evidence of that disease endpoint. I would also point out that the highest coconut consumption ever recorded, to my knowledge, is in the island of Tokelau, which is in the Pacific Islands. And there was a famous study called the uh, Tokelau Migrant Study, I believe it was called. And I, if I recall, there was a natural disaster, and if I recall correctly, I think it was a cyclone that hit Tokelau in the 1960s. My details may be slightly off. But in any case, there was a natural disaster that caused roughly half of the population of Tokelau to move to New Zealand. And adjusting for age, the there was significant heart disease in Tokelauans who moved to New Zealand and changed their diet and lifestyle to what was common in modern New Zealand, which involved a dramatic decrease in the consumption of coconut and of saturated fat as a result. And they had a pretty strong incidence of heart disease there. And the other half, the incidence of heart disease was 0%, even if you look at the more advanced age category so that you're totally controlling for age. And so I just honestly, I, you know, I, I feel like most of the research out there is noise if it's going to target saturated fat as the primary cause of, of heart disease. I mean, look at the variations of different fatty acids that we're looking at. The variations of different fatty acids that we're looking at in uh, America are all varying around a point of about, um, of about I think, 11% of calories is saturated fat. By contrast, in Tokelau, we're looking at about 50% of calories is saturated fat. 
So I think some things, you know, if we're going to isolate, if we're going to get this granular and say, lauric acid has this effect on heart disease, myristic acid has this effect on heart disease, I feel like we're arguing about these tiny trivialities in the different consumption of these fatty acids. And this giant elephant is in the room, which is that you can take any of those fatty acids and eat five times more of them. And in the right context, that's not promoting heart disease. And if that's the case, I think that I mean, we're, we're, we must be arguing about minutiae that have very little practical application uh, compared to the things that we should be talking about. So, you know, to borrow, um, I, you know, to borrow a concept from Tim Ferriss here, let's sit down and do an 80-20 analysis of what are the things that can protect us from heart disease best. And I feel like, you know, arguing about variations in those specific fatty acids is probably going to fall into that category of, you know, large amount of mental energy spent on things that are going to have le very little uh, practical impact on what we're doing. All right, Ty, uh, if given what how you introduced this, I'm sure that you still feel conflicted, but I hope my view uh, provides a little bit of um, a, a little bit of thought for you. And thank you very much for your question. Um, okay, David provides a link. David, thank you for providing the link, but it would be impossible for me to look at links during Facebook Live. Sharon Shaver House uh, hates that these videos that just start up and won't listen. Um, Sharon, I apologize for uh, showing up in your newsfeed. Uh, thank you for quickly acting on that and not listening to this video. Oh, sorry, Facebook Live. All right, we're back in order. Um, Ellie Jo Smith estimates that one in ten, one in a hundred teens develops one or another variation of POTS. I'm not sure what that stands for. There are an estimated one to three million Americans living with POTS. 85% of patients are female, uh, most often between the ages of 12 to 50. Uh, what is your take on POTS? Um, Ellie, uh, please define your abbreviations and everyone else, please, uh, please always define your abbreviations on first use. I, I'm not sure off the top of my head what that means, and it's possible that that's because I don't know about it, uh, but it's also highly probable that I'm thinking on the spot trying to answer everyone's questions in that situation. Even if I did know the acronym, there's probably a 70% chance that I would temporarily forget it. Uh, so if you can re-ask your question and define that term, I might be able to answer it. Christopher Ruscio says, what's the latest understanding of how being ApoE4 should shape one's nutritional decisions? Uh, great question. I have been resisting answering this question for years, actually, and um, I'm prepared to offer a tentative explanation, but it's not something that I've been able to research intensively. So first of all, uh, to get everyone on the same page, ApoE is a protein that is in it's part of the lipoproteins that carry lipids in the blood, and it's actually part of pretty much all of them. And it does quite a few things, but there's actually, we have a pool of ApoE that exists in our circulation. We also have a pool of ApoE that seems to be separate and independent that our brain produces. And it's best known because there is one specific allele called ApoE epsilon 4, or sometimes just called E4 for short, that if you have two copies of that allele, one from each parent, you have 15 times the risk of developing uh, late onset Alzheimer's disease. And there is some speculation that it relates to heart disease. There's some research trying to relate it to heart disease, but I would say that that 
right now, the state of that research is that it's extremely messy. And the state of the research on um, what, how it should impact our nutritional decisions is extremely messy. So first of all, I want to say that if you are interested in knowing what your APOE genotype is, and you are watching the live video, I give you, uh, if you download Snapchat and you search for my name, Chris Masterjohn, spelled as one word, and follow me on Snapchat, until tomorrow late afternoon, you will be able to see a tutorial that I gave about how to find out your own APOE genotype using 23andMe. And if you, like I, got your 23andMe years ago before they had their dispute with the FDA, you can actually just go into the disease risk section and look at the report on Alzheimer's disease risk. If you got it after their dispute with the FDA, which was circa 2013 or 14, um, then you do not have access to the Alzheimer's health report, but you can, using a trick that I will that I have shown you on Snapchat, you can find out your own APOE genotype with by spending about two minutes looking it up in the raw data. It's actually pretty simple. Um, I will eventually, I'll write a blog post or a podcast about APOE. And in that, I will also include a YouTube-based permanent video tutorial on how to do this. But for now, uh, before I do that, you can access it until tomorrow afternoon on Snapchat. All right, here's the deal. APOE4 and Alzheimer's, definitely connected. APOE4 and heart disease, really unclear. So there are, there are in total, the studies do suggest that if you have the E4 genotype, uh, by the way, I have one E4 allele and one non-E4 allele. So, uh, so I'm not in the 15-fold risk, but I'm in the you know the moderate increase, about like 12% increase in risk of Alzheimer's. Um, but if you have one or both of your alleles are E4, then there is evidence that you have a greater heart disease risk. However, there is no evidence that that provides you any information that you can't already get by looking at traditional blood markers. So for example, if you want to assess your heart disease risk by looking at the total to HDL cholesterol ratio, there's no evidence that looking at that provides you more or less information if you do or don't even know your APOE genotype. So I would say so. The, right now the verdict is useful for heart disease risk prediction? Probably not. Now, how does it, how does it interact with nutritional decisions? That's where this gets really messy. If you want to really grasp just how messy it is, there is a recent study that should be, if you put this, if you search for APOE4 and then put saturated fat in quotes, this will probably come up at the top. Uh, there's a recent study showing that people who don't have cognitive impairment, if they have the APOE4 genotype, then eating a meal rich in sugar and fat will temporarily decrease their cognitive uh, performance. But if they do have cognitive impairment and they do also have the E4 genotype, then eating the same meal rich in sugar and fat will improve their cognitive performance. Now, I mean, what are we going to do with that information? Are we going to say everyone should eat sugar and fat or everyone should avoid eating sugar and fat? I mean, to be honest, until we really map out the mechanisms, I don't think that we should conclude anything from this. And one of the problems is sugar and fat. Well, is it the sugar or is it the fat? 
And most of the dietary studies that I was able to find when I was perusing them combined high glycemic carbohydrates with saturated fat and compared that to low glycemic diet that's low in total fat. So is it the sugar? Is it the saturated fat? Is it the total fat? Or is it some combination? Most of the studies out there, there's no basis for trying to understand that level of detail. And then there's, for and in trying to understand mechanisms, there are studies indicating that if you have the E4 genotype and you consume omega-3 fatty acids, you are more likely to burn those omega-3 fatty acids for energy and they are less likely to get into the heart or into the brain. And one of the hypotheses about that is that that means that you'll be less likely to have a good content of the omega-3 fatty acid DHA in the brain, and low levels of that are tied to Alzheimer's disease. But then there are also studies showing that that's only true if you're overweight. And if you achieve a lean uh, body mass index, then that mechanism doesn't apply. So when we're looking at it like that, you know, should we bother with the nutritional studies about E4? Or should we just do what we already know is the case? And if we are overweight and obese, um, try to find a practical way that we can sustainably go on the path towards a better body composition, because that's going to benefit many other endpoints. So to be honest, I do not buy into using the E4 genotype to modify the diet at this present time. And I would say that most of the things that are speculated about how it should affect the diet, for example, maybe you should eat less saturated fat. There are much better ways of looking at whether you should eat less saturated fat by moving beyond your genotype and look at what it's actually doing to your body. So for example, someone who has familial hypercholesterolemia and their blood lipids skyrocket when they eat saturated fat and cholesterol, that part person probably should be emulating a traditional diet that's lower in saturated fat and cholesterol, like the Katavan diet, for example, where they, most of the fat comes from fish and coconut, but the fat content is low, about 20% of calories. The, um, the cholesterol content is low, et cetera, et cetera. And if you do not see gross abnormalities in your blood lipids, then I don't think you should take the E4 genotype and say, oh, you know, even though everything looks like it's in tip-top shape in me, I should take this genotype and infer something about what I should do to my diet to change it. You know, you should pick the diet that works best for you and a combination of the things that you know are priorities to you, like how do you feel? What is your mood like? What's your energy level like? If you are an information worker, what is your cognitive performance like? If you are an athlete, what is your athletic performance like? A combination of those things and things that we can infer by measuring things, for example, our blood lipids. Thank you very much for your question, Christopher. I hope that helps. Diego Paparella says, sleep apnea related to heart disease and arrhythmias. I, uh, to be honest, I have not studied sleep apnea uh, in any detail, and so I would be unlikely to offer very good comments about this. I have been asked about sleep apnea in the past, and so it is on my list of things to research. Uh, I have done a lot of research on sleep but my particular problem that I've battled all my life is insomnia. And so all of my focus on trying to understand sleep has been in trying to, trying to understand insomnia. Eventually, I do hope to look into sleep apnea. I would say that um, there might be 
just to speculate, there might be metabolic or nutritional abnormalities underlying both of those, but also sleep apnea interferes with sleep and sleep impacts every single aspect of your health that you could possibly think of. So it should be, you know, if you have sleep apnea uh, or you have insomnia or you have trouble staying asleep, um, those should, it should always be your top priority to find a practical solution that allows you to get better sleep. Thank you for your question, Diego. Paul Boyle says, what is your favorite marker for the risk of heart disease? As I said before, in terms of blood lipids, it's the total to HDL cholesterol ratio. Um, but it really depends what you're trying to do. So um, there are a lot of markers that would be specific to specific people. So for example, uh, men, uh, well, men and women, but especially especially all men and postmenopausal women should have a complete iron screening on at least occasion. Uh, that could potentially, you know, in specific people that could drive heart disease risk. Um, you know, certainly blood pressure is, is important. Um, certainly uh, waist to hip ratio is important to look at your metabolic health. Uh, so I would say in terms of blood lipids, definitely total to HDL cholesterol ratio. But in terms of whole body health that could potentially impact um, heart disease, I would say blood pressure, waist to hip ratio, um, and those would be the big ones. And then, you know, the rest of it is turn, you know, comes down to nutritional balance and that sort of a can of worms where each person could have a different nutritional imbalance that might drive that risk of heart disease. And that would really be dozens of questions uh, packed into one. So maybe if nutritional questions come up, oh, and I see the next question is nutritional, we can start talking about some of those nutritional markers. Uh, thank you for your question, Paul. David Sander says, there are multiple factors for heart disease Take high doses of vitamin D and the MK4 vitamin K2 to reduce artery calcification. Use saturated fat as replacement calories. Reduced fast carbohydrates and vegetable oils and look to improve your insulin sensitivity. David, I'm not sure if you have a question there, um, but I will, uh, I will comment back to your comment. Um, so David brings up a, a variety of important nutritional issues. One of them is vitamin D. One of the things that I have written about a lot is that vitamin D can both prevent, maybe reverse, and but also cause heart disease because vitamin D is super important to many things, including regulating calcium. But if you have vitamin D in great excess of other nutrients that are involved in helping vitamin D direct calcium in the right places then vitamin D could actually drive calcification of the arteries, which is an independent con con contributor to heart disease risk. And so I would, um, I would recommend that people look at my AHS talk from a couple of years ago, resolving the vitamin D paradox. And I talk about that. We definitely know that if you bring your 25 OHD, which is the a primary marker of nutritional status up into the 30s as measured in nanograms per milliliter. Always in these discussions, make sure that you're looking at units. If you're not from the United States, it's possible that you your labs will come back in nanomoles per liter, and the numbers would be two and a half times higher than this. But if you bring your 25 OHD into the 30s, you are on average, not necessarily in you as an individual, but on average, that's 
dropping your heart disease risk to the lowest level. When you get higher than the 40s, the risk actually starts increasing. Now, is that because of the absolute number of vitamin D or is it because it's out of balance with other nutrients? I'm not sure. But one of the nutrients that vitamin D definitely needs to be in balance with is vitamin K2. Um, vitamin K in general, but vitamin K2 is much more effective at, uh, at producing these, uh, these results. And what vitamin K2 is really doing is activating proteins that are made with the help of vitamin D and vitamin A uh, to help to uh, prevent calcium from going into the arteries and, and kidneys and other soft tissues and make sure that it gets into the bones and teeth. So you need vitamin A and vitamin D to make the proteins. And, and please, please don't just talk about vitamin D and K because vitamin A is just as important as vitamin D to this process, no more, no less. And if, um, if you only talk about vitamin D, it's really obs obscuring the issue. Okay, so vitamin A and vitamin D need to be taken together and they make proteins that are activated, activated by vitamin K, particularly vitamin K2, and that helps protect the arteries uh, from calcification, which in turn prevents heart disease risk. You get vitamin A from red, orange, yellow, and green vegetables to some degree, but different people are good uh, and different people are bad at getting vitamin A from plant matter. So the most reliable way to get vitamin A is to eat liver uh, or to use cod liver oil. Liver once a week would probably be a good idea. A serving of cod liver oil once a day would accomplish the same thing. Um, and for vitamin D, of course, you know people know fatty fish, sunshine are the main food sources. For vitamin K2, you're really looking at animal fats and fermented foods. In the diet, and ironically, people have been told to avoid high cholesterol, high fat foods like egg yolks and cheese. In fact, uh, Dr. Neil Barnard, um, who I have had the pleasure of, of meeting with when I was in a, a, a debate about these topics in Intelligence Squared a couple of years ago, so I'll, I'll post that in the show notes. Um, he recently said that cheese is very similar to Vaseline because it's 70% fat, so there's not much difference between eating cheese and Vaseline. Actually, cheese is really rich in vitamin K2, and it's egg yolks and cheese that are providing most people with most of their vitamin K2, which is providing most of the protection against, um, against the... Uh, against the calcification of the arteries. Um, saturated fat is replacement calories. I'm not really sure um, what that means. Reduced fast carbohydrates. I don't know if fast means high glycemic car carbohydrates. I'm actually not too concerned about high glycemic carbohydrates, um, depending, you know, except for people who are very vulnerable to high blood sugar swings. Um, vegetable oils, I agree with, and definitely improving your insulin sensitivity is a good thing. Thank you for your comment, David. Timothy Sullivan says, what is your opinion of the correlation of cholesterol and heart disease? Um, I've indicated this earlier, so I'll just briefly review that definitely the strongest correlation between any blood lipid and heart disease is the total to HDL cholesterol ratio. The lower that it is, the lower your risk for heart disease. Um, and I, I apologize for anyone who has to watch me profusely sweat, but it's over 80 degrees in my apartment. And if I had the air conditioner on, you would not be able to hear me. Okay. So um, 
So if we're looking at this, uh, you know, you can, so if you're, if you go to your doctor, you will get the standard guidelines put out by the National Cholesterol Education Program that want your total cholesterol, uh, you know, under 200 and your LDL optimize it to a hundred or so, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a little bit more liberal with that. I think that in the context of the, the American population, maybe those are, are good guidelines if you assume that people are eating the, that bad diet and bad lifestyle is the cause of the high cholesterol. But I think you know there are a lot of it, populations outside the context of modern society who have blood lipids that are higher than that and are totally free of heart disease on a population level. I think if we look at those populations, I would say that someone, someone on a very high saturated fat diet from coconut, for example, may, you know, men, maybe total cholesterol should go up to 220 or so. Women in the postmenopausal ages may be higher than that to 250 or so. But you never see, you know, men going up to like 280 or anyone going over 300 and things like that. And so I think that um, if when I personally and again, my viewpoint on this is controversial, but when I personally see someone with cholesterol, uh, like a man with cholesterol levels in substantial excess of 220 consistently, women substantial excess of 250 consistently, and especially when I see that paired with a total HDL cholesterol that's higher than th three, so you know, 3.1, I'm not going to worry about, but if it's four, I would be concerned if it's five, six, seven, I would start to get really concerned. When I see those in combination, what I start to think is that your cholesterol metabolism is getting backed up and there is some metabolic issue that needs to be solved. One thing that I would want to look at in that case is what are your thyroid hormones like and what are your sex hormones like? Because thyroid hormone is one of the key regulators of cholesterol metabolism. And if thyroid hormone is low, you're not going to turn the the cholesterol into sex hormones. And so if you see high cholesterol, low sex hormones, the, that combination really screams metabolic backup. What can we do to increase the metabolic rate? And if you're characterizing thyroid hormones, there are a few different ways that you can approach that. Uh, I would suggest getting a full thyroid panel that's going to have not just TSH, which is the common marker, but also T T3, T4, um, reverse T3 thyroid antibodies. And what you want to do is take all this, as much information as you can to try to create a, a picture of what's going on in the metabolism. I would point out that you could be resistant to thyroid hormone, even if the levels are normal. There's very little known about how what causes thyroid to get into the cells. But we do know that when stress is elevated um, and you have really high levels of free fatty acids as a result of that stress, you can have normal thyroid hormone and it might not be doing its job inside the cells because the free fatty acids interfere with thyroid binding to its nuclear receptor. So in that case, I, would, I wouldn't I would take the thyroid... The, the purpose of measuring thyroid hormones is to get information about what in that access, access is going wrong. It's not to rule in or out a disorder. You know, if your cholesterol is high, that doesn't mean you have a thyroid disorder. You're just taking in the information to try to understand what is a metabolism like and how can we put it back into balance. Um, so those are the th the key things that I would look look at if I see cholesterol and I'm worried about heart disease. Thank you, Timothy, for your question. Terrell Lloyd says, could you talk on uh, POTS, best way to overcome POTS? Um, again, uh, postural... Um, tachycardia 
I don't know much about it. Uh, I'm sorry that I can't really ask that, uh, answer that question, but um, perhaps for a future episode of Facebook Live or a podcast or a blog post, I could try to look into that. If you, um, you want to email me at chrismasterjohn, spelled like my name, at gmail.com and give me more specific uh, questions about that and point me in the direction of research that you'd like me to review. I can't promise to get to it in a timely fashion, but I would try to take a look at it. So thank you very much for your question, uh, Terrell. Uh, Timothy says, what do statins do to your body? They inhibit cholesterol synthesis. Hopefully they primarily do that in the liver. Like I said before, that makes the liver hungry for cholesterol. The liver increases the expression of the LDL receptor and takes cholesterol from the blood into the liver. They don't directly inhibit cholesterol synthesis. They actually inhibit the synthesis of a compound called mevalinate. And mevalinate doesn't just act as a precursor to cholesterol. It also acts as a precursor to many other molecules, including coenzyme Q10. And so one of the nutritional concerns about statins is that you're interfering with coenzyme Q10, which is really important to energy metabolism and is really important as an antioxidant. In fact, if you go to, say, Vitamin Shop or GNC, you'll see the CoQ10 supplements are probably marketed as brain energy, and that reflects the fact that it's helping you get a higher rate of energy metabolism, get energy into the brain, but it's generally true across the body. So when people have side effects from statins, some of those side effects are driven by CoQ10 depletion, most likely, and so that's a serious uh, concern. And that's one of the reasons why... I would prefer to try to fix a problem with diet and lifestyle before having someone go on statins. Thank you, Timothy, for your question. Megan Hall says, hi, Chris. What? Hi, Megan. What, if anything, do you know about the relatively new idea of dysfunctional HDL? Some HDL seems to be pro-inflammatory, may not be as simple as HDL equals good, LDL equals bad. Um, I don't have very well thought out uh, ideas about that. Uh, to the extent that I've looked looked at it, I really don't think that I, I I really don't think that ultimately the way we should be thinking about this is you know this is a good HDL that's a bad LDL uh, HDL just like I don't think that we should look at LDL as bad and HDL as good. I think what we want to understand is what are some of the issues that can make some HDL have different functions than other HDL, and you know one of the overlooked functions of HDL is actually to deliver vitamin E to endothelial cells, which are the cells that line the blood vessel wall. And delivering vitamin E to those endothelial cells has um, provides an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effect there. When I say anti-inflammatory, um, I really don't like that word. And what I really mean is when you have the raw material of vitamin E, that helps you prevent inflammation from being triggered or persisting when it shouldn't be there. So it helps you put inflammation into the right context. And one of the things that's different about HDL particles that don't have the anti-inflammatory functions is actually that they don't have the vitamin E to deliver to the endothelial cells. So because I haven't kept up with the literature intensively on this, there may be other things that I'm missing to add to that explanation, but I do think it's generally overlooked that that's one of HDL's functions, and I think that that probably underlies um, part of that effect. Then the question becomes, you know, why are some people's HDL like this and some people's HDL like that? And I think that probably comes down 
at least in part to what are you eating and what is your overall antioxidant balance and oxidative stress looking like? Because if, for example, if the liver is subject to inflammation and oxidative stress, for example, if you have fatty liver developing, which is very strongly related to heart disease, then in those cases, you know, from the very moment that the liver is packaging up these lipoproteins, the antioxidant defense is compromised because the liver is going to be sucking up the vitamin E for its own needs. And that vitamin E is not going to be putting out into the lipoprotein cycle so that it can get to other tissues. So I don't think that's a complete answer to your question, but I think that's one piece of the puzzle. And I hope that provides maybe some insight that that was missing uh, before I provided it. Thank you very much, Megan, for your question. Fortune asks, there's a lot of controversy about whether heart disease can be reversed. Can you deplaque yourself over time by a diet without fancy drugs? Um, I think that, you know, going back to the very foundations of our understanding of heart disease, back to uh, the cholesterol-fed rabbit model, one of the things that Nikolai Anichkov uh, showed in that model back in the 19-teens is that the only thing that you need to do to reverse heart disease is remove the conditions that cause the heart disease to develop. So I would take that as the theoretical basis and go forward and say, maybe it's not clear how to reverse heart disease, but it is, but it should be clear that that should be the goal and that we should work with the working paradigm that what we're trying to do is not just prevent heart disease, but actually reverse it. Um, in that case, uh, that sort of opens up you know, a can of worms in terms of what are the conditions that cause heart disease to develop. Well, I would briefly outline them as poor antioxidant status, and the solution is support the antioxidant defense system. That's really a much broader topic than it sounds like. Poor metabolic rate, so poor rate of metabolizing LDL particles, restore that metabolism to normal, and that's a matter of restoring insulin sensitivity, insulin, and when I say that, that implies that you also want insulin. So if severe carbohydrate restriction is your solution to insulin uh, insulin resistance, then I don't think that's going to be the be-all, end-all answer um, in that case. But you want to restore insulin sensitivity and provide stimulus for that insulin in the form of adequate carbohydrate. Uh, you want to fix any thyroid problems that are existent. You want to engage in stress management to support the thyroid access. Um, you want to uh, su you want to support the regulation of um, the environment inside the blood vessel. One thing that is overlooked but maybe of interest is that getting adequate manganese status, for example, um, and maybe that comes down to blueberries and maple syrup, but uh, getting adequate manganese synthesis helps make the inside of the blood vessel wall less sticky, so the LDL particles are less likely to get there. And resolving inflammation, you know, chronic inflammation uh, is, is a wide thing underlying not just heart disease, but many other modern diseases. Um, and that is a complicated issue to resolve inf inflammation. But, um, uh, you know, I think one, I think in a future time we should have like ask Chris Master John anything about inflammation and then we can get into that then. Um, so that's, that's what I would say to that. And that's definitely got to be our goal and, uh, reversing calcification. And so as we talked about before, the fat soluble vitamins are really important for that. And, uh, finally, 
if you if you are at the point where the fibrous cap of your plaque is degenerating, where you are actually in a very advanced stage, then one of the things you need to do to stop the degeneration of that plaque is not just resolve inflammation, but also provide a lot of stimulus for collagen synthesis to, to help make sure that that plaque doesn't get destroyed while you're working to resolve the other aspects contributing to the plaque. And that really comes down to having adequate vitamin C and adequate glycine. Best way to get glycine is through collagen rich materials like bones, skin, uh, insect exoskeletons and, uh, gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen supplements. All right. Thank you fortune for your question. Paul Boyle says, also, do you have a favorite supplement to assist someone who is at risk or has heart disease? That uh, is totally dependent on why they're at risk for heart disease. Um, so before I can answer that question, you need to make it more specific. Ter but thank you very much for your question, Paul. Terrell says, why don't people on keto diets get heart disease? I can't answer that question because I've never seen any research showing that long-term uh, certainly lifelong consumption of a ketogenic diet doesn't cause heart disease. So um, maybe if you know of evidence that I'm not aware of about that, uh, one thing that you could do is uh, email it to me, chrismasterjohn at gmail.com. Email me the study that shows that uh, people on ketogenic diets do not get heart disease under the conditions and at the ages that we would expect them to. Uh, I'll take a look at that and maybe make that a subject of a future podcast. Thank you, Ter Terrell, for your question. David Sander says, can you mention the use of plain niacin in the treatment of heart disease? It's reported more effective than statins in research. Um, I have looked at niacin in the past and didn't find it that interesting to pursue in detail because the mechanism that it's thought to utilize uh, doesn't really fall in line with what I believe are the primary causes of heart disease. Um, so I can't really comment on it right now in any extensive manner, except to say that uh, it has been used. There are some supportive studies. Um, in that case, you are using niacin as a pharmacological treatment, and that's definitely not a nutritional effect of niacin. And so I, that's one of the reasons that I've avoided it because I feel like there are dietary and nutritional strategies that most people can really use to restore the natural function of the body. And I don't think that high dose niacin even approaches that. Um, but since I'm not giving you a good answer now, I will try to come back at a later point and write something about that or fit it into a podcast so that um, I'm not shortchanging you of a good answer to your question. Thank you, David. Ellie Joe Smith says, please don't talk about things everyone knows about or can easily get info off the internet. Um, thanks, Ellie. But, you know, your, your, your contribution here could be to ask a specific question that you don't think falls into that category. Um, so maybe next time you can do that, Ellie. Thanks. Ty Beal comes back to say, I have read many papers suggesting the risk of heart disease increases when systolic blood pressure is in the range of 120 to 140 prehypertension. Will reducing blood pressure in individuals with systolic BP between 120 to 140 lower the risk? Or is BP possibly a confounding factor for another cause? Um, I mean, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm of the opinion that you should try to 
restore the blood pressure to lower than that? I mean, it's probably both. So, um, and and the degree to which it's harmful probably depends on the context and the the specific context in terms of our. Um, are, you know, what does the rest of your heart disease risk look like? So, for example, if you have a calcified blood vessel, the pressure that's put on that blood vessel is much more likely to stress the blood vessel and potentially rupture it compared to the same amount of pressure if it wasn't calcified. Similarly, in a plaque, the plaque's more likely to rupture with calcification there when you apply the same amount of pressure and tension to it. So on the one hand, there must be some normal amount of tension that's supposed to be in our blood vessels, and we should try to achieve that tension. But on the other hand, how badly does that tension impact the health of the blood vessel is going to depend a lot on the elasticity of the blood vessel. If you have a young, healthy blood vessel that's free of calcium deposits and, uh, and you know, the rest of the plaque process, that blood pressure is probably not going to do much damage to that blood vessel because it's so resilient. Whereas that same blood pressure probably is going to put a lot of stress on the blood vessel um, when the other defenses start to fall apart and that resiliency starts to wane. From what I've seen, um, the guidelines, that, you know, a lot of people think that the guidelines that are coming out are, are, you know, a lot of people are just like, well, when I was growing up, they said that when you get older, your uh, blood pressure should go up this much with each year and blah, 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 blah. But I think what we really want to do is look at, well, what do healthy, one, you know, one of the inputs to our information should be, what do the healthy um, populations that are eat traditional diets, live traditional lifestyles, and what does their blood pressure look like? And it seems to me, I haven't researched it extensively, but it seems to me like the guidelines that we're coming to are more or less consistent with what we would see in those populations. So I'm of the opinion that you do want to try to um, to get your blood pressure into what's considered the healthy range. And I think you want to do that by... Um, having really good mineral status, particularly potassium from a large amount of fruits and vegetables and getting starch from things like potatoes and instead of having uh, grains be the overwhelming factor in your diet. I think that's really helpful. Um, some people may benefit from salt restriction, but I think that tends to be the um, I, that tends to be in the context of a dysfunctional metabolism. A metabolically healthy person, in my opinion, probably doesn't need to restrict salt. Um, and then, of course, you know, the big elephant in the room is stress. And, you know, I think if you look at stress, the answer to your question is both. Stress contributes to high blood pressure, which has direct negative effects on blood vessels. But stress also compromises the thyroid axis, which compromises cholesterol levels. Stress compromises the thyroid axis, which in turn compromises fat-soluble vitamin function. For example, the functions of A, D, and K in protecting against blood vessel blood vessel calcification are dependent on good thyroid status. And if when the adrenal axis is overwhelming the thyroid axis, that's going to impair the functions of the fat-soluble vitamins that protect against blood vessel calcification. So the answer to your question is not either or. I think it's or and. Uh, thanks, Ty, for your question. Paul Sufka says, what would you measure to assess risk of heart disease? Which of these are useful as modifiable markers and which are not modifiable? Um, 
Well, like I said before several times, I think the total to HDL cholesterol ratio is one of the important things that most important things that you want to look at. And I think that in most people that is modifiable with diet and lifestyle. If you take a case where it's extreme and you have something like um, familial hypercholesterolemia, you start getting into territory where the thing that is very modifiable in a, in a person of typical genetics is not modifiable in some people and you start to move on to other strategies. But you know, for the average person, I think that the total to HDL cholesterol ratio is a, is a major predictor of heart disease risk. And quite often when that's out of whack, it's for it's because you're it's because you're not contributing to good insulin sensitivity, insulin status, and thyroid status. And I would say in the general population, the big thing that you're looking at is is overweight and obesity. Because overweight and obesity is the primary driver of insulin resistance. Insulin resistance interferes with thyroid function. Insulin itself is very key to regulating uh, cholesterol levels. And actually, I want to back up and, and make a... Uh, when I finish answering your question, I want to come back to that um, and discuss it a bit. But... Um, you know, if you so if you see the if if you're seeing those cholesterol levels being off in a person who's overweight or obese, then the body composition should be one of the first things that you're looking at. But if you're looking at if you see the same thing in a lean person who's got really poor nutrient intake, then you say, well, hey, maybe the crap that you're eating is compromising your antioxidant defense, and that's why you have um, your cholesterol going out of whack. And you work on that. Or if you have someone where the blood lipids are out of whack and they're restricting carbohydrates severely, then you say, um, you know, maybe it's the carbohydrate intake that's out of whack and you address that. If you have someone who's trying really hard to uh, eat well and in doing so, they are eating only local foods and they're only using unrefined sea salt then you have to say, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe everything that you're doing is really well-intentioned, but you're only eating local foods that are grown in your own selenium-poor soil and your own iodine-poor soil. And yeah, unrefined sea salt is great, but no one puts iodine in it and the natural iodine from the sea evaporates, so you're probably deficient in iodine. And maybe what you need to do is not assume that every well-intentioned dietary factor is um, like it should be, and start looking at those minerals like selenium and iodine that that could be low in that type of person. So, it, you know, it you really have to take you have to take the general thing, but then you have to assess the specific situation and see what is most likely to be the broken link in that in that point. I want to I want to come back for a second and explain something about insulin. So, as I have uh, talked about a lot recently um, in my Examine.com Research Digest editorial about insulin. Uh, also in my Paleo FX talk and in the podcast, daily, the Daily Lipid Podcast, episode 11, about my Paleo FX talk. Um, insulin is uh, taken by our body as a symbol of energy status. And so, as short term energy status. And as a result, our body does a couple things with it. One of those that affects blood lipids and heart disease risk is that. Insulin, when you are sensitive to it, promotes thyroid hormone production and activation. Thyroid hormone in its cellular biological activity, when thyroid hormone is working well inside the cell, that is the principal systemic, meaning 
communicating throughout your whole body, that is the principal systemic regulator of LDL receptor activity that makes cholesterol get taken from the blood and go into the cells. Now, also, there's one other important impact of insulin. So one of the things that's been of great interest in the last few years is this uh, molecule called PCSK9. And PCSK9 is involved in the degradation of the LDL receptor. And so one of the new classes of drugs that are currently being tested, and we'll probably have probably be 2018 before we have definitive answers to whether they prevent heart disease in the specific populations for which they're designed. But PCSK9 inhibitors are being tested now as as a means of, uh, if you inhibit PCSK9, you inhibit the degradation of LDL receptors, more LDL receptor expression takes cholesterol from the blood into the cells. Well, let's, you know, one of the things that that is also being researched is what is PCSK9? What is it supposed to be doing? In what context did it evolve and why does it do the things that it does? So there are really two things. If you take a healthy person that has typical genetics, there are two things that impact PCSK9 activity. And that is insulin and inflammation. And it's thought that the evolutionary environment that shaped the function of PCSK9 was one in which we were subject to periodic and perhaps frequent episodes of fasting simply because of fluctuations in food availability and where infectious diseases was among the uh, one of the leading causes of death. And so protecting against infectious diseases was of prime importance um, in humans in that context. And if you look at what uh, impacts PCSK9 activity, when you are fasting, the supply of lipids coming into your body is low. And if the liver were to hog all of those lipids, then the supply of those lipids to the rest of the tissues in your body would be compromised. So in fasting, you don't want high LDL receptor activity because... If you have high LDL receptor activity in the liver, which is the main tissue that expresses it, you have scarce lipids and they're all getting hogged by the liver and the other tissues starve for those lipids. So in fasting, insulin levels drop and PCSK9 activity goes up. That causes the LDL receptors to be degraded and and LDL receptor activity drops. Also... PCSK9 um, antagonizes, uh, excuse me, um, LDL receptor activity in the liver can potentially antagonize our ability to defend ourselves against pathogens. One reason is that the lipoproteins directly in the blood help bind to pathogenic infectious organisms and prevent them or their particles from causing damage to us. So in infection, we actually want high blood lipids. The other thing is that the LDL receptor facilitates what we call reverse cholesterol transport, which is taking cholesterol out of the other tissues and bringing it back to the liver. And if we have an infection, we don't want reverse cholesterol transport because having cholesterol in those other tissues actually helps our immune system in those cells where the high cholesterol content in the membrane is really high, helps them activate the immune response to pathogens. So we, 
it's thought that we evolved in this context where we want PCSK9 activity to be high under inflammation or under fasting conditions. And, um, and then when we are free of infection or we are in the fed state, we want PCSK9 activity to be low so that our LDL receptor activity can be higher. So for now you translate that into now and we're not subject to periodic infections and we're not subject to infectious disease as the main driver of mortality. And so how PCSK9 is operating in our context is quite different. But one of the things that you want to note is that, you know, although like both now and in our ancestry, we would have periodic increases in insulin while we're in the fed state. And it would be natural to undergo exposure of high insulin, but we would be sensitive to it. And that high insulin would be one of the things that would provide high LDL receptor activity. Translate that into the modern scenario, and you have insulin-resistant people in the modern population, but then you also have a small population of people trying to fix insulin sensitivity with chronic carbohydrate restriction. You may restore sensitivity in that situation, but you don't have the you don't even have periodic exposures to high levels of insulin. And so you have chronic underexpression of LDL receptor activity in those people. So I think that, you know, in that specific case, if you see those blood lipid changes, then you want to look at carbohydrate intake. So um, so Paul, I that's your your question has many answers, but uh, I hope that um, by providing many answers that, you know, maybe one of those answers is likely to help each person in some way and thereby hopefully I could help more people. Thank you for your question, Paul. Uh, Lay says, hi, Chris, love your work. How much impact do you believe APOE status plays in CVD risk? Um, I, Lay, I responded to that earlier. You probably wrote this question before I responded to it. So thank you very much for your question, but I'm going to move on. Tony uh, Cotroneo says, do you believe Americans overconsume calcium, especially in supplementation, and throw other vitamins, minerals out of balance and cause hardening in arteries? No. And, you know, in the ancestral health community, I may be like totally an outlier on this, but I, I think that that's wrong. And I think that, you know, a lot of what I've written about why you want to get the fat-soluble vitamins has been construed in some cases to say what you want is the fat-soluble vitamins and not the calcium. What you want is both. You want the calcium and the fat-soluble vitamins. You know, if you, like, I think some people look at this and they say, well, humans didn't evolve consuming dairy. And so, the, you know, our ancestral calcium intake should have been low. But what you don't realize is that, first of all, we have continued to evolve since those of us who have dairy in our ancestry have, you know, for thousands of years has that, had that dairy ancestry. And, um, you know, that different people will have different ancestry, but I think that for many of us, if that's in our heritage, so for example, uh, Caucasians or white, white European ancestry, but also among Africans, uh, probably African-Americans who trace their ancestry to, um, to the coast of Western Africa where agricultural diets were predominant uh, that weren't dairy-based diets, those calcium uh, requirements may be uh, lower in those populations. But on the other hand, it's not, you know, it's not white versus black or European versus African because if you look at, for example, the Maasai, 
Um, they are equatorial African and they have really high calcium intakes from dairy. But then you look at the Hadza, they don't consume any dairy at all. But one of their food groups, it's been said, is, uh, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but baobab or something like that. It's a plant that is so high in calcium that their calcium intake is, is as if they were a dairying people. Um, and if you look at some estimates, you could say that, you know, sure, if you take out the dairy and leave us with the rest of our food, it's way low in calcium. But if you take all, out all the grains and you have a real high consumption of leaves and uh, tubers and other non-grain foods, the calcium starts to build up. And you also have to take into account the fact that most ancestral peoples consumed a lot of small animals and insects. So if you're, those groups are consuming bones as well as, um, as well as insect exoskeletons. For example, an exobar made from crickets, one bar is, you know, it's not, not even, it's, crickets are only one ingredient in the bar, but it's giving you uh, something like 10% of the RDA for calcium. Uh, if you if crickets were, whole crickets were 10% of your diet, you'd probably be getting a lot of calcium from that. So I think that most people should probably be consuming a gram to a gram and a half of calcium. Sure, there are studies where you take the typical American consuming a gram and then you add a gram on top of that. But there are plenty of Americans that are consuming less than a gram of calcium. And I don't, I don't think that's good. And I don't think that calcium intake is what's driving um, calcification. I think that poor intake of the fat-soluble vitamins is one thing that's driving that. So I eat a lot of cheese uh, you know, despite Dr. Barnard's Vaseline theory of cheese, I eat a lot of cheese. Um, and when I, when I'm trying to lose fat, I eat less cheese and I take bone meal powder. Uh, I, I feel like I should be shooting for, you know, one to between one and 1.5 grams of calcium, but that cheese is also giving me, you know, I eat aged cheese that's free of lactose and is mad rich in vitamin K2. So you, we want more nutrition, not less. And, but we want it to, cross the spectrum so we don't have those imbalances. Thank you, Tony, for your question. Paul, uh, Paulo says, I too recall hearing something about there being more than just LDL and HDL. What's the skinny? Uh, yeah, we talk about LDL and HDL as the main lipoproteins. There's also VLDL, IDL, um, and so on. But, uh, but we talk about LDL and HDL because they're the main lipoproteins. And I will, I'll try to link in the show notes when they eventually come out to some details about the lipoprotein cycle. But Suffice it to say that on a practical level, I don't think that the average person needs to get be concerned with the other subfractions because the total to HDL cholesterol ratio is the best lipid-based predictor of heart disease risk. And that is that's determined by HDL cholesterol and everything else. So everything else includes uh, VLDL and LDL and IDL and so on. So um so yeah, on a scientific level, we want to really get granular on that when we're talking about the biochemistry. On a practical level, um, we don't need that granularity, I don't think. Thank you, Paolo, for your question. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, but Wirimo Matthews says, hey, man, love your work here. Thank you. My background is medicinal chemistry and worked as a pharmacist for years to find that I don't agree with the use of medicines as first line of therapy. Uh, that's great. Neither do I. I'm into helping people get off them now. Interested in your thoughts about the use of essential oils as possible replacement for certain medicines. Also, psychoneuroimmunology as a way to impact on epigenetics. Thanks, bro. Uh, thank you, bro. I, I mean, that question is very general. I'll try to give one example. So we talked a lot about, or, or a little bit about inflammation. 
I think a lot of people uh, are not getting arachidonic acid and and especially DHA, the omega-3 fatty acid, in their tissues enough. And I think that... Um, and I think that also many people are blocking the metabolism of those things with o- over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs. And in doing so, uh, those are some of the primary inhibitors of the resolution of inflammation. And for that reason, that, I think that's one of the things that underlies chronic inflammation. So I think that getting arachidonic acid from liver and egg yolks, uh, dumping all of the COX inhibitors with the possible exception and not as a first resort, but possible exception of low-dose aspirin, um, you know, minimizing all of the other uh, COX inhibitors or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, those should be a last line of resort. They absolutely should not be, oh, I have a headache and this is modestly uncomfortable, let me take a pill for it. You know, if it's debilitating or whatever, fine, but um, I think we need to get rid of those. We need to get fish into our diets. We need to get egg yolks into our diets and liver into our diets. I think that's the main thing. Essential oils is a broad term. That includes vegetable oils. That's essential oils. I don't think that we should be consuming modern vegetable oils. I think we should be focusing on traditional fats, and I would definitely make that distinction. Uh, thank you very much, Weary Moo, for your question. Fred Corey says, uh, this is not about atherosclerosis, but I would like to know about dental root canals and heart disease risk. Um, I would say that, um, if there are any endodontists in the audience, they're going to hate me right now. But if you want to read up on that, I would recommend the book root canal cover up by George Meinig. And if that piques your interest, then I would get from the price Pottinger nutrition, uh, foundation. I would order Weston prices more than 1200 two volume book on that, on all his 25 research, uh, years of research in that subject, um, and there are two names to it. I, for, I forgot the titles, but I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, I would, I would go down that route, uh, to look into that, um, that, but I will say that's very controversial. And so it's probably a good idea to, um, try to look for the opposite view as well. Um, but I am skeptical of root canals. Um, Ben Clark says, is the conventional view on blood pressure range correct? I addressed that earlier. Thank you very much for your question, Ben. James says, what are the best things I can do to reduce my risk of heart disease? Um, that really depends on what your risk is and why. And so you'd have to be much more specific about that. I can't answer your question, but thank you for asking it, James. Catherine Morrison says, plus one on Lee's question about APOE status. Um, great. I'm only seeing this now, but glad I'm, I answered it before. Um, Essie says, hi, Professor. Hi, Essie. Um, good to hear from you again. SE has been my student. In today's world, if you have high cholesterol, doctors tend to prescribe medication. Do you think more emphasis should be put on diet modification instead? Are there studies that show medi- uh, that show medication is effective? Uh, yeah, there's tons of studies showing that statins are effective. There's a lot of controversy about whether that's true in people who don't have heart disease and yet, and whether that's true in women. Um, People approach it with their different biases. So, you know, if you if your bias is anti-statins, you're going to say, you know, hey, there's n- no one has shown that um, no one has or, or excuse me, you're going to say, of course, there, there's no evidence that they're not effective in women um, because they, it hasn't been studied enough. And if you're pro 
um, that's what you would say if you're pro-statin. If you're anti-statin, you look at the same evidence and you say um, there's no evidence that they are effective in women. Um, so really, there's you know there's a lot of questions, but in general, there's definitely the principle is true that if you take someone at really high risk of heart disease and you give them statins um, in a population, on average, you will do, reduce the risk. On the other hand, I I totally agree uh, with the general principle that you mentioned that we should be looking at diet and lifestyle first. And so I you know I talked a lot about that tonight. So I would I would uh, that's a good place to offer a conclusion and say um, that. There is a place for medication, but we always should be thinking as a first line of defense, how can we use diet and lifestyle to fix what's wrong in this situation? And I don't believe that we get heart disease because we're supposed to get heart disease. And although I do think that because medical care has extended the average lifespan um, from birth and has been you know, solving a lot of other problems that would um, contribute to earlier death, that yes, those factors are partly responsible for modern heart disease. But I also think that we are not supposed to get heart disease. And if you look at, for example, the island of Tokelau, even adjusting for age in the Tokelau migrant study, the people who lived on Tokelau and ate their traditional diet and lived their traditional lifestyle, 0% heart disease risk compared to people of the same age getting heart disease when they had the same genetics, same age, but were put into the environment that modern New Zealand was exposing them to. So I think that we should start from the premise that something is wrong with our environment, our diet and lifestyle, and we should try to deduce what those things are. And we can say some things that are, that are wrong in common across, um, across people, but we, um, we really need to look at each person and say, what is this person's missing link? Uh, what is the most effective thing to fix in this particular person? And I think that, you know, that's something that uh, hopefully something like this can empower you as an individual to try to do for yourself. But it's also something where it can be really useful to get in contact with a knowledgeable healthcare practitioner that is using more than drugs in their approach and understands functional medicine and individualized medicine and the importance of diet and lifestyle. And I'm going to plug one more time. Like I said last time, that's why I'm really help, uh, happy that Chris Kresser is coming out with his Kresser Institute clinician training program. All right. Facebook is warning me that there are less than three minutes left. So it is time to wrap up. Thank you, Essie, for providing the last question. So first of all, on the good side, thank you so much, everyone, for showing up. This was a way cooler episode than it would have been if it were just me talking. You provided the questions that became the show, and I think that's awesome. You uh, understand my ideas better the way, in a way that's tailored to what you're trying to understand. I understand what your concerns are better, and that can help me direct my future efforts. Um, if you love this, like it and share it, of course, but also click on the subscribe button. If you click the subscribe button, you will get a phone notification every time I go live. Also check out my blog, The Daily Lipid. If you Google The Daily Lipid, it should be at the top, or you can go to blog.cholesterol-and-health.com. There I have the schedule of upcoming Facebook live shows. If you, uh, you can follow my work there. You can also go into your favorite podcast app and search for The Daily Lipid and subscribe to my podcast. You can also find me on social media, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat. Um, so I, I hope to see you there, and I really look forward to the next Facebook Live episode. Um, hopefully, if these continue to be so successful, we can keep having 
um, more episodes, we can come back to heart disease. Uh, but also in a few episodes from now, it's going to be another free for all. So if I didn't answer your question this time around, you can bring that question back around for the free for all and ask it then. Uh, until now, um, happy and safe night to everyone. And I hope to see more of you in the times to come. If you love this podcast, please help support it by sharing it on social media, by downloading the episodes or subscribing to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and by rating it and reviewing it in the iTunes store. The ratings and reviews really make a difference in the visibility and the success of the podcast. If you want to find my work, please visit my blog, The Daily Lipid, at blog.cholesterol-and-health.com, where you can find all my other writings as well as the show notes for this podcast. If you want to find my work on social media, find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Finally, if you want to see me speak in person, come to the Ancestral Health Symposium in Boulder, Colorado, August 11th through 13th, or to Wise Traditions, the annual conference of the Weston A. Price Foundation in Montgomery, Alabama, November 11th through November 14th. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next episode.